Hello, everyone, and welcome to Building the Machine, the podcast series from Red Leg Nation Radio. Over these 12 episodes, we're bringing you the story of the Big Red Machine, Cincinnati's baseball dynasty that changed the game forever. Day by day, year by year, you're going to see how the machine was constructed, all the highs and lows, and the legacy that remains. Each week, we're bringing you a new episode focusing on a single year from 1969 to 1979. If you didn't get to experience the Big Red Machine as they were dominating baseball, you're going to enjoy the chance to experience the story as if you were there and learn more about the names and events that were so important in shaping the narrative around the Cincinnati Reds. Now, if you were fortunate enough to watch the machine live, this is going to be a fun blast from the past. This is episode 10. So, so close. I'm Chad Dotson, and joining me now to discuss the 1978 Cincinnati Reds is Bill Lack. How are you today, Bill? I'm wonderful. I'm wonderful. Ready to talk about 78 and close, but no cigar. 1978. Pop culture, as we commonly do on these episodes, we talk about what was going on in the world. Space Invaders, the arcade video game, was released that year. Were you a big Space Invaders fan, Bill? You told us last episode you weren't a big video game guy, but come on, you had to go into an arcade occasionally and play some Space Invaders. I don't think I ever dropped a quarter in a video game. Good grief, Bill Lack. I know, and I was, you know, 22 at the time. No, I was 20 at the time. I'm sorry. I went to public school. My math skills aren't what they used to be. Chalk another one up (laughs) for the Ohio public school system. There you go. Also in 1978, kind of a rough year in uh, the world of crime, Ted Bundy committed his infamous murder and assault at the Chi Omega sorority house at Florida State University. The Hillside Strangler... A serial killer prowling Los Angeles claimed a tenth and final victim. They'd come to find out that maybe it was two different hillside stranglers. And Chicago serial killer John Wayne Gacy, who was subsequently convicted of the murder of 33 young men and boys committed between 1972 and 1978, is finally arrested. Strange times around the country, 1978. That's some grisly stuff you're talking about there. And it doesn't get any better when we talk about the uh, Jonestown incident in Guyana. Jim Jones led his People's Temple cult in a mass murder-suicide that claimed 918 lives in all, 909 of them at Jonestown itself, including over 270 children. Congressman Leo Ryan was assassinated by members of the People's Temple shortly beforehand. Do you remember that as it happened, Bill? Yeah, I do. And, and to this day, you just you just shake your head and you wonder how, how, how one person can convince another person to kill themselves. I just That's beyond my comprehension. Agreed. What else happened in the world in 1978? Uh, The Panama Canal Treaty was approved, which would turn over control of the canal to Panama by the year 2000. The Camp Davis Accords were signed between Egypt, Anwar Sadat, and Israel, Menachem and Begin. And the the Camp David Accords were, of course, led by Jimmy Carter. In the world of movies in 1978, now the 70s were a great decade in film, if you love movies. But 1978 was not a banner year, although I have to say I enjoyed each of the top three highest grossing films of the year, Superman, the original, Grease, and Animal House. I bet you were a big Animal House guy. I'm a huge Animal House fan. I, to this day, if it's one of those movies that if, I'm, if it's on and I'm clicking around, you have to stop. And, and the other one, it, I don't know many more movies that have gotten more quotes that people say, you know, in, in their life, you know. Fat, dumb, and stupid is no way to go through life, young man. You know, <laughs> there's so many quotable lines. You know, when the Nazis bombed Pearl Harbor, you know, and they still show that on the the uh, jumbo screens at the 
sporting events all the time when they're trying to get a big rally going. Yep. My favorite movie of that year, just a, a brilliant movie, ended up winning Best Picture, was The Deer Hunter with Robert De Niro and Christopher Walken. Just absolutely loved that one. It was a little better than uh, the sequel to The Bad News Bears. The Bad News Bears Go to Japan. Not the best movie. No. The original Halloween came out that year, though. That was a scary movie and ended up catapulting Jamie Lee Curtis into fame. Yeah. To give you an idea, though, of how the 70s were not quite there, Every Which Way But Loose came out. And, and who were the two stars of that movie, Bill? Clint Eastwood and an orangutan. And the movie made a lot of money. It did. It did. And actually, I enjoyed that movie, but I wouldn't say that's a top-shelf cinephile entertainment. What else came out that no, year? It's not, it's not classic cinema, that's for sure. A couple other movies that came out that year, uh, The Buddy Holly Story with Gary Busey. Excellent movie. A movie that I enjoyed, uh, a remake, Heaven Can Wait with Warren Beatty. And maybe the worst movie ever made, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, starring Peter Frampton and the Bee Gees. And it had a huge all-star cast. Uh, Steve Martin did Maxwell Silver Hammer. George Burns did Fixing a Hole. There were two good songs made out of that movie, though. Earth, Wind, and Fire did Gotta Get You Into My Life. And Aerosmith did uh, Come Together. And those are both really, really good versions of Beatles songs. But boy, is it a bad movie. Wow. Happy to say I never caught up with that one. Now, when it comes to music in the 70s, Bill, you're my go-to guy. Tell us about the music world in 1978. Well, the biggest hits that year, uh, Staying Alive, still from Saturday Night Fever. Uh, from Greece, You're the One That I Want with Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta. The Village People came out with YMCA. Queen with We Will Rock You, We Are the Champions. The big albums that year, one of my favorites of all time, Linda Ronstadt had Living in the USA. The aforementioned on our last episode, Billy Joel, had 52nd Street that year, another really, really good album. Blondie had Parallel Lines, and Bob Seger's classic Stranger in Town came out that year. Barry Gibb, the immortal Barry Gibb, also became the only songwriter in history in 1978 to have written four consecutive number one singles on Billboard's Hot 100 chart. The Bee Gees had three top ten singles that three of the top ten singles that year, and their younger brother Andy had two. It was a strange time, 1978, Bill. You, you made a lot of money if your name was Gibb. Evidently. You probably also made some money if you were uh, Donna Summer, the queen of disco, became the first it female... It was the disco era. It was. Donna Summer became the first female artist of the modern rock era to have the number one single, MacArthur Park, and the number one album, Live and More, on Billboard's charts simultaneously. Also, Prince debuted that year with his album For You, every track produced, arranged, composed, and performed by Prince. Rest in peace. What else you got, Bill? If you And if you've never seen the tribute to Prince that was, or the, 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 the tribute to George Harrison, it was done with in Prince for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony a few years ago. Go out on YouTube and watch that. It's an amazing performance by Prince. Van Halen debuted with their self-titled album, Van Halen. Eddie Van Halen introduces a powerful new guitar sound and a new technique to the world. And David Lee Roth is ushered in as the front man of Van Halen. And speaking of YouTube... Steve Martin performs his song King Tut on Saturday Night Live. And if you've never seen Steve Martin do King Tut, this is another one you need to YouTube. It's hysterical. And that song really kind of went viral 
so to speak. It, things didn't go viral back then, but it, it swept the nation. This song, King Tut, didn't it? I mean, it was played on radios. Oh yeah, it was. It was a big hit. I mean, my guess is if you look at the at the Billboard Top 100 for that year in singles, it's on there somewhere. And I read Steve Martin's autobiography a year or two ago, and it was interesting to see how this just took him by surprise and really took him to another level. There was a time where he was just about as big a star as anyone in America. 1978 was the genesis of that. Yeah, that was the wild and crazy guy era. That's right. Let's talk television. Debuting on television that year, Dallas, Fantasy Island, The Incredible Hulk, Robin Williams' debut in Mork and Mindy, Different Strokes, one of my favorite. What you talking about, Willis? And, of course, WKRPN, Cincinnati. Cincinnati. And Mark and Mindy was a spinoff of? Happy Days, another spinoff of Happy Days. That yes, it was. Made WKRP is, is, was such a great, funny, funny, funny show. We, a couple of years ago, we bought the whole series, and, and we, we watch it, the whole thing every now and again. We'll binge it. And, every, and it's a Thanksgiving tradition at our house to watch the Thanksgiving Day episode, the Turkey Drop episode of WKRP on Thanksgiving at the Black House. Yeah, you know, it's um, remembered in Cincinnati because, obviously, in Cincinnati is in the title, but it was a legitimately good uh, program. And we do the same every single Thanksgiving. I'll take, we have this first season of that series on uh, DVD, and I'll take the I'll take the disc out to my parents' house every single Thanksgiving. And that's one of our traditions. We sit around, and the whole family, all my, my brothers are in, and we watch Les Nessman. With God as my witness, I thought turkeys could fly. <laughs> What went off the air in 1978, Bill? A $6 million man with Lee Majors, the classic Bob Newhart show, Maud, a spinoff of All in the Family, Rhoda, a spinoff of Mary Tyler Moore, Chico and the Man, which kind of had to fold up tents after we lost Freddie Prince the, the previous year, and something called Laugh Olympics, which I don't know what that was. <laughs> you don't remember the Laugh Olympics? No, I do not. Perhaps you weren't four years old this this year. Because, no, was, let me tell you, the Laugh Olympics was just a, a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. where it was kind uh, of like, in, in the last episode, we talked about these super teams, uh, those competitions they had. Well, this is one yeah. where they, they put the uh, cartoon characters in the, basically, competitions. And, and I, my brother and I thought it was hysterical. Was it, were, they, were they classic cartoon characters, like Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck, or were they like no, it was Hong all Kong Fu? It was like Hong Kong Fu, all the Hanna-Barbera characters from that Oh, okay. Time. Did they have Huckleberry Hound and Quick Draw McGraw? Absolutely, yes, yes. There you Huckle go. Huckleberry Hound, I believe, was a captain of one of the teams, the Huckleberry, Huckleberry Hounds. Well, why wouldn't he be? Exactly, obviously. <laughs> also in 1978, the Star Wars Holiday Special airs on CBS. Now, this is its first time, and its only time it was ever aired on broadcast television. And this, you know, we keep telling you, you need to go to YouTube to watch this and this, because it does give you some context of what the time was like. I don't even know if this is even available on YouTube. I saw it somewhere at one time. It is the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. Matter of fact, I remember how I saw it when I was in law school. One of my roommates had a VHS tape that had gotten from somewhere. I don't know. Boba Fett, it's the first time he ever shows up in anything, but it is brutally bad. Star Wars Holiday Special. How about the world of sports, Bill? What can you tell us about the world of sports? Well, the, the, the Capital Bullets, I'm not sure they're the Baltimore Bullets or the Capital Bullets back then. They defeated the Seattle Supersonics in seven games to win the NBA championship. Uh, Bullets power forward center Wes Unseld from the University of Louisville was named MVP of the series. 
The Cowboys defeated the Broncos 27-10 to to win their second Super Bowl. The MVPs were Harvey Martin and Randy White. And it was the first time the Super Bowl was played in the evening. In a rematch from the previous season, the Montreal Canadiens again beat the Boston Bruins, this time four games to two to win the Stanley Cup. Now, I'm I'll, let take... you, I'll, let you talk, I'll let you talk about the World Cup. I knew you were going to send that to me. Since you're not as much a soccer fan, Argentina defeated the Netherlands 3-1 to after extra time to win the 1978 FIFA World Cup. Affirmed became the last horse to win the U.S. Triple Crown of horse racing until 2015. And Leon Spinks defeated Muhammad Ali to win the World Heavyweight Championship in only his eighth professional fight. Ali would regain the crown later in the year, but do you remember that Spinks-Ali fight, Bill? I remember both of them, very much so. Uh the first one, Ali, he, he didn't show up. And the second one, he wasn't playing. And when Ali wasn't playing, somebody was in trouble. Yeah, there's a Richard Pryor did a really funny routine in one of his concert movies. I can't remember which one it was, where he, he would talk about he talked about the second fight, and he said, and every time Leon started something, Ali'd grab him and say, "No, no." He said, when the ref would break up, he'd go, "Yeah, now take this with you," and he did him. <laughs> <laughs> 1978, born in that year. Not a banner year for uh, for big names being born, but actors Rachel McAdams, Ashton Kutcher, James Franco, Bill Hader, and Andy Samberg. Saturday Night Live guys there. Uh, the late Kobe Bryant was born in 1978. Entertainer Usher and boxer Manny Pacquiao. All-time great boxer Manny Pacquiao. All-time great. And again, not uh, a banner year for... Uh, people in the news passing away, but a couple of tragedies. Yeah. Uh, California Angels outfielder Lyman Bostock was shot to death at age 27 while visiting friends in Gary, Indiana, while the Angels were on a road trip in Chicago. And Keith Moon, the hard living drummer of the Who, died of an overdose. Let's get to the 1978 Cincinnati Reds, shall we, Bill? Yeah. If you remember our last episode, the 1977 Reds, Traded Tony Perez, acquired Tom Seaver, finished 88-74, second place in the National League Western Division behind the Los Angeles Dodgers. So they're coming back into 78 with something to prove. And the front office at the time, as, as the 77 season ended and we started to move towards 78, management really still believed, and Sparky did as well, that the starting eight were still quote-unquote grade eight, even though uh, all of the actual grade eight weren't there because... Tony Perez had gone off to other environs and after being traded to the Expos. But uh, can you give us a little bit of context, Bill, about what, what the front office felt about the team and, and how their thinking sort of manifested itself in the way they approached this season? Well, they, they, they felt that the veterans were still really, really good. I don't know if they would have called them great eight at that time, but they were still really good. But they were all on the downside of their careers. Morgan, Bench, and Rose, they were just at an age where they had to be expected to decline. But the flaw in the thinking by the front office was that they thought the young guys were going to continue to get better. And, and, and thinking specifically about Griffey and Dreesen and Geronimo and, and Concepcion. And, and they didn't. You know, Concepcion did, but Dreesen it, it, it kind, of plat, kind of plateaus and Geronimo uh, drops back. And, and Griffey never becomes the player that he looked like he was going to be in 75, 76, and 77. Yeah, Griffey was just 28 at that time, uh, Dreesen 26. And you're right, that's the thing about Griffey is he had such an amazing start at a really young age that they would have been justified in believing he was going to improve, certainly. And Dreesen as well, who was just uh, 26 in the 1978 season and had a pretty good year with the bat, at least, at age 25. 
And that really didn't happen, as we'll see over these next couple of years. I can remember at the time the Reds saying that they believed that both Griffey and Dreesen would win batting titles. And that's not an unreasonable position to take. Griffey almost had a couple of years right. earlier. And Dreesen obviously was a, was a good high average hitter. A big problem as well for the Reds is something that we've kind of tracked. Eight straight years of no first-round picks making it to the big leagues, and it's really starting to cause a problem, right? Yeah, they, they, they had really bad drafts in 72 and 73. They didn't produce any talent for the Reds. And this is about the time where they thought those guys would be coming up and, and being effective. Uh, they did draft Jay Howell in 1973, but the Reds would trade him for Michael Barry long before Howell became an effective reliever for the A's and the Dodgers. Uh, the bad drafts that we have talked about in previous episodes are really coming home to roost at this point. Housen did trade the aforementioned in our last episode, our, our trade fodder for Tony Perez, Woody Fryman, to the Cubs for a 29-year-old right-handed pitcher named Bill Bonham. And Housen dug his heels in again and, and refused to take part in the free agent draft, and he passed on every one of the 43 rounds of the free agent draft. And let me talk just for a moment about that free agent draft, what that meant. It was uh, It's a different world than it is today when you have a free agent. Anybody can negotiate with them. But initially, and for some years thereafter, there was this so-called free agent reentry draft for the players who had played out their contract. And the first one was actually held in November of 76 at the Plaza Hotel in New York. Um, and it was limited to the, then the 24 existing clubs, Seattle and Toronto were expansion franchise, so they didn't get to participate. But the clubs drafted in inverse order of the standings. And you could select negotiation rights to as many players as were eligible. You pick the guys you want to negotiate with. And when a player was chosen by 12 clubs other than his own team, his name was removed from the draft list. And there were, the, the first year, there were 24 players. And we talked last year about how average annual pay jumped up from 51000 to over 76000 a 42% increase. Uh, 12 signed long-term deals, or really record-setting multi-year contracts that they'd never seen before. An example would be Bill Campbell of the Minnesota Twins, who had been denied a $7,000 increase. And he ended up, after this free agent draft, signing with the Red Sox for four years for a million dollars, $250,000 a year. Uh, he, he'd made 23000 the year before, and he got bumped up to 250000 a year. And so we talked every episode about the salary negotiation. That's just a, a really, really big uh, jump. And Bob Housem just steadfastly refused to even pay any attention to it. He was not going to sign a free agent. And for all the good that Bob Housem did for the Reds, that refusal has to be placed in the, the negative column when you look at his history, right? Absolutely. I, I had forgotten about how the, draft, the free agent draft worked. I'm glad you kind of let us know how that worked. It's much different than, you know, you can only negotiate with 12 teams, which, you know, but for the players at the time, this was like a whole new world opening up. And like you said, when a guy went from, you know, a, a small salary to, to $250,000 a year, it was like manna from heaven for these guys. And Housen's refusal to, to change with the times uh, would, would show in, in the, effect, the effect on the team late in the 70s and in the early 80s. No question about it. Now, we've talked as well about when does the Big Red Machine really end? And we've decided to take this series through 1979, and there's a good argument to be to be made that it ends after 1979. Some people would argue it ends when Tony Perez was traded, as we discussed in our last episode. I think you can also make a really good case that on December 9th of 1977, as we're going into that 78 season, something happens that absolutely affects the Reds in 1978, but also is, is something that maybe could have extended the Big Red Machine 
but uh, it didn't happen. And what happened was that day, the Reds announced that they'd made a trade, and the trade was to bring Vita Blue from Oakland, if you'll remember from uh, the 1972 World Series. The deal was supposed to be Vita Blue to Cincinnati in exchange for first baseman Dave Revering and $1.75 million in cash would be going back to Oakland, and it would have given the Reds two former Cy Young winners. They had Tom Seaver and Vita Blue at the top of that rotation. This is huge news, and really, as you looked at we have talked about how the aging pitching staff was becoming a problem. All of a sudden, you got an offense is still pretty good, combined with really a hammer at one-two punch at the top of, of the rotation. And uh, it didn't happen. Why not, Bill? Because Bowie Coon's a butthead. Not to put too but, fine a point on it. <laughs> uh, and, and the other thing, you're talking about the, the, having a one-two hammer. This might have been the best one-two punch the Reds would have had in their rotation since what, the 39-40 teams that had Bucky Walters and, and uh, um, Paul Derringer? Probably, maybe. Yeah. But anyway, Bowie Kuhn, who was the commissioner of baseball at the time, didn't like Charlie Finley. It was public knowledge that they just didn't get along. Well, Kuhn said he wanted to, quote, unquote, investigate the transaction. And the year before, Kuhn had blocked an A's deal that it was going to send Vita Blue, Raleigh Fingers, and Joe Rudy to the Yankees. Saying, you know, and he, so Kuhn had blocked that deal. So on January the 30th, Kuhn said he was blocking the deal over competitive balance, and Hausam was not happy. He said there was nothing in the deal that was against any written rules. Though Kuhn had, in 1977, said the cash transactions should not exceed $400,000. But there were no official rules saying that. He also later said, I don't think baseball intended, or I'm sorry, Bob Hausam said, I don't think baseball intended the commissioner to decide which team should be allowed to win pennants and how often. And it really looks like a situation where the Reds had won two of the last three and they were going to be a powerhouse again. And it's really hard to justify blocking that deal under the terms that Bowie Kuhn said. And, you know, I'm still living. I don't remember when it happened at the time, obviously, but I'm still livid at this date because that really could have changed who the Reds were as they get up into the 80s and become uh, the team that I fell in love with. It just it's it's astounding to me that the commissioner can just say nope, not letting it happen, and uh, we'll see the ramifications it has. Yeah, you don't know, and you don't know how much of this had to do with you know him wanting the competitive balance. You know, his doesn't want the Reds to win again, and how much of the fact uh, this was because he wanted to screw over Charlie Finley. Either way, it's, yeah, it, or both. Right, it's it ended up screwing uh, Cincinnati Reds fans, frankly. Now. Housing did end up still trading uh, Revering to Oakland. He got reliever Doug Bear back, and that would end up being Bob Housing's final deal of the uh, of the era. With a, with a young Dan Dries in the first base, there'd been no place for Revering. He'd been a star in the farm system, but not acquiring Vita Blue. <laughs> We're going to talk about the pitching, and man, he just had a he had a fabulous year in '78, didn't he? Yes, he did, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. Yeah. Now on March the first, we said that was Bob Housing's final deal. Because on March the 1st, Bob Housen stepped down as general manager of the Reds, turned the team over to Dick Wagner. Uh, he did remain with the club as an advisor to the vice chairman, but the uh, immortal Dick Wagner, who's not remembered particularly fondly in Cincinnati circles, takes over. Bob Housen gone. Now, it was a surprise to a lot of people, but evidently it wasn't a surprise to uh, some people in the know, Bill. Well, that's what they say. Team Insider said they weren't surprised, and I, and I think it was very kind of you to how you, how you worded how Dick Wagner is remembered being the most hated man in Cincinnati for a long time would probably be a a more honest way of saying it. 
But Team Insider said they weren't surprised when Hauser retired. He had said he wanted to retire at age 60, and he and he was 60, and he had a really, really bad back and was having some health issues. But many believed also that the, that the way the game was changing and that, that his, his hatred of free agency had really drained his enthusiasm for the game. He, he admitted to people that the fun was gone, and that he felt like the team put in all, all the effort with scouting and development and bringing players up, and, and, and then they could the players could just walk away in their prime, and he didn't feel like that was right. I get it for someone that was brought up in the old school of, uh, you know, of baseball, but uh, probably that uh, Vada Blue and Bowie Coon decision, that was probably the straw, right, that, that, that broke the camel's back. I would, tend to, I would tend to think so, that it, that was the one where he said, okay, I'm at, you know, that's enough. I, you know, I, can't, I can't work like this. Yeah, uh, because he left right before spring training. I mean, you'd think he would have left at the conclusion of a season, right? Uh, if it weren't, if that weren't really what put him over the edge, because um, by that time he'd already basically put together the roster for '78. Although uh, Dick Wagner did get to work a little bit, what did he do? He traded, you know, Jack Billingham, who we've mentioned again and again and again, especially when we were talking about World Series, to the Tigers for two minor leaguers who basically didn't do anything for the Reds. Billingham had finished the 77 season in the bullpen. He wasn't expected to be in the Reds rotation in 78, but as it turns out, he might have ended up there. But he, he would have two pretty good seasons in Detroit in their rotation after being traded. Now, this Cincinnati Reds team, 1978, I mean, we're going into the season and still have to be pretty high expectations. For the first time in National League history, one team had four most valuable player winners after uh, George Foster had won the previous year. So you got George Foster, you got Joe Morgan, you got Pete Rose, and you got Johnny Bench, still all effective players. That's pretty. Uh, that's a pretty powerhouse lineup, even though they were all beginning to age a little bit. But really, they needed to fine-tune the pitching even more, which is what uh, Housen was trying to do. How'd that end up working out, Bill? Well, their, their rotation would be anchored by Tom Seaver and Bill Bonham and Freddie Norman. And they were going to fill it out with prospects like Tommy Hume, uh, Paul Moscow, and this Doug Capella. But they all needed to get better after 77. Uh, the bullpen would be anchored by Doug Bear and Dale Murray, and Murray would be uh, would end up being traded in May for uh, an outfielder named Kenny Henderson, along with uh, Pedro Borbone and Dave Tomlin, who came back to the Reds after having four pretty good years in San Diego. Um, and, and, the, and the final pitcher in that bullpen would probably would be Manny Sarmiento. Now, Sparky Anderson decided going into the spring training camp that he was going to run a tougher camp. You know, we talked early on his first camp. Uh, Johnny Bench noted how awful it was. He just ran it like a military camp. And in 78, he decided he was going to go back to the kind of being tough on the players. He said the camp in 1977 had been lackadaisical. The team had been complacent. Uh, and we, we heard about the breakdown in uh, discipline in terms of, in our last episode, talking about the, the snickering on the team bus that just uh, even Joe Morgan couldn't put a stop to. Uh, but really, the most exciting thing that happened that spring was on March 17th, right, Bill? St. Patrick's Day? Yeah, the Reds did something they had never done before. Uh, they donned green uniforms for St. Patrick's Day. And they even had green catching gear for the occasion, which tells you, you know, this wouldn't happen in the March shot era. And and they did this for, for it, it, the book that we read, that I saw this in said several years, but I remember doing it, them doing this for a long time where they wear the green uniforms every year on St. Patrick's Day. It's kind of a cool look. You know, for being different, I wouldn't want them doing it half the season. But for one day, it's pretty cool. Oh yeah, absolutely. When I late late nineties, when I was in school, me and some buddies took a road trip to Cooperstown, New York, uh, and you know the Baseball Hall of Fame's in Cooperstown, Bill. And I purchased a green Reds cap up there, and I wore that thing 
out. I mean, I literally wore it just every day until I graduated. I'd love that uh, cap, and I wish I had another one. Like, I need to get one. I think they've got them at the Reds gift shop. They have every type of cap at the Reds gift shop. Yes, they do. <laughs> Regular season. Opening day comes on April the 6th. And the Reds, you know, start out better in 1978 than they had in most seasons. We've talked about their slow starts. It begins on opening day, an 11-9 win. Three rain delays, though, lasted a total of 102 minutes. The Reds, you know, just 88 wins the previous season. But after winning 102 in 76, Reds fans were wondering what's going on. Well, Tom Seaver gives up a homer to the very first hitter of the game, and the Reds were down 5-1 to one just like that. But they come back. Joe Morgan had a home run, had a couple doubles, five RBIs, and the Reds beat J.R. Richard. So that's a that's a good uh, first game. Tom Seaver versus J.R. Richard, and the Reds get the win. What's next on the calendar here? April 29th, Bill. Tell us what happened that day. Well, the Reds beat the Mets up at Shea 14-7. to You know, Bench and Rose scored touchdowns, and Joe Morgan <laughs> kicked two extra. Oh, no, wait a minute. Rose hit three home runs, also had two singles and six at-bats. He also drove in and scored four runs. And, and Rose only hit seven home runs in 78, and he hit three of them that day. This was the only game between 70 and 86 that he hit more than one home run in a game. And the Reds would finish April at 13-8, and eight, which is a pretty good at that point, uh, but still in second place, fi- a half game behind first. But uh, May, they uh, played well again, and really one of their best starts of the 70s, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was. They were, they were 30-19 and 19 at the end of May, and we're going to talk a little bit more about May in a minute, but... The problem was the Dodgers and the Giants kept up with them. Uh, they were playing 6-12 baseball, but they were a game and a half behind the Giants, and the Dodgers were two and a half behind the Reds. So they were still tightly packed in at the end of May. But playing well and right in the thick of things, so this is where the Reds are supposed to be, fighting for a, a division championship. On May 5th, Pete Rose collected his 3,000th career hit off Steve Rogers of the Montreal Expos. And I remember a poster giveaway. Now, I wasn't at a game when they gave this away, but somehow it made it into my bedroom growing up. Maybe my dad had been to the game. I don't know how how it uh, got there. But they, the, at Riverfront Stadium, they gave away a, a poster that said 3,000 on it and it had Pete Rose standing at first base right next to Tony Perez wearing his Expos uniform, which is kind of a strange look. Do you remember that poster, Bill? Did you ever see that one? Yeah, I do. I remember that, too. And, and whenever you saw Perez in, a, in an Expos uniform, it, it always looked odd to me. It's like later when you saw Morgan and Rose in Philly's uniforms. It just never looked right. Never looked right outside of the beautiful red and white. May 7th, Pete Rose set out the second game of the doubleheader. That ended his club record of 678 consecutive games. And and interesting, between 1972 and 1982, Pete Rose only missed four games. That's, I know we talk about uh, Cal Ripken and the Ironman, but that's, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, that's that's strong. I, I'd be curious to know what the Reds' consecutive game streak is currently. What is it, sixty-two or something? You think? <laughs> Probably, yeah. I mean, <laughs> there for a while, Joey Votto was playing every uh, game every day, but uh, that's not happened the last couple of years. So, who knows? Right. May nineteenth, Dale Murray. You already mentioned traded to the Mets for Ken Henderson, so that ended basically. That wrapped up the Tony Perez trade, and just. Just a, a mess. There was nothing good that came out of that trade, frankly. Henderson ended up being a disaster for the Reds. He was always injured. And, and Bill, you you and your research uh, found out that the Reds had a little nickname uh, involving Ken Henderson? Yeah, when Ken Henderson was always hurt, I guess he was always in the trainer's room. And the whirlpool in there became known as the USS Henderson. <laughs> I love it. On June the 8th, 
the Reds selected Nick Asaski in the first round of the draft. So that broke a streak of eight straight years of no first-rounders making the big leagues finally. Now, But again, we talk about, with, in respect to the big red machine, how the drafting and scouting took a dip for a while. Nick Asaski broke that streak, but he wouldn't debut until you know the early 80s. So it was uh, far past what we're talking about. Nothing that they did really helped the team, right? Right, but this was a pretty good draft for the Reds. They they also got Dave Van Gorder, Jeff Lottie, Charlie Liebrandt, Gary Reedus, Skeeter Barnes, Tom Lawless, and Brad the Animal Leslie. And they also drafted Otis Nixon that year, but he didn't sign with the Reds. Gary Reedus, who stole home in the very first game that I ever attended at Riverfront Stadium. His, if you ever want to look at something interesting, look at Gary Reedus's numbers from when he played in Billings. They were incredible. Yeah, it looked like a future star. and ended up having a good major league career, but you're right. June Another guy couldn't stay couldn't stay healthy. Bad knees yeah. ended his career way too soon. Fast guy with bad knees. That's a that's a quick way to end it. Yep. June fourteenth, Pete Rose went two for four against the Cubs. That's important because well, we'll talk about why it's important. That's the first uh, game in the streak that he uh, goes into. He's only hitting two sixty seven going into that game in a five for forty four slump, but things changed. Now June sixteenth, Tom Seaver through the only no-hitter of his career, uh, one four to nothing. And, uh, you know, when Chris Garber and I wrote the book, The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the Cincinnati Reds, we had a good time researching that game, a lot of good uh, anecdotes. And by the time Seaver was traded to the region, he was already a 10-time All-Star, but he never pitched the no-hitter, had pitched five one-hitters, and three times he'd taken a no-hitter as far as the ninth inning, but ended up giving up a hit each time. So June 16th, 1978, which is actually... He, a year. Took, a, he took a perfect game to the ninth one time, didn't he? Or to, to nine and a third or eight and a third or something? Oh, yeah, into the ninth inning. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, it was funny, one of his teammates with the Mets was uh, Jerry Kuzman. And uh, and Kuzman had thrown a, a no-hitter. And so every so often, Kuzman would just kind of drop down against next to Seaver in the clubhouse and say, hey, uh, hey Tommy, when are you going to pitch a no-hitter? <laughs> and Seaver would, would say, you know, uh, anytime I feel like it. I just never felt like it. Well, one year and one day after the trade, uh, Seaver was on a roll. I mean, at that point, mid-June. Uh, his last six starts, he'd had pitched, he'd posted a 1.63 ERA. And, of course, the Cardinals were pretty bad anyway. They'd finished the year with the second-worst record in the National League. Um, and Seaver wasn't really sharp. He was pitching to Don Werner, the immortal Don Werner. What's that all about, the, Bill? The immortal Don Werner, who that season... It, he did play in, in 50 games. He had an OPS plus of 22. But got 132 plate appearances. He was uh, pretty terrible. Well, Seaver in the second inning walks uh, the first hitter. And then and that first hitter was uh, Keith Hernandez, first baseman. And Seaver thought he was going to try to steal. So the first pitch was a pitch out. Hernandez wasn't going. Then he threw over to first base twice, trying to keep him close. And then when he finally pitched, Hernandez did throw, take off for second, and the throw from Don Werner was not a good one. Went into center field. Hernandez goes to third, and, and the cards were in business. So um, Seaver then gives up another base on balls and, and really didn't have his best stuff. And what he said later was, I didn't have a super fastball, uh, but I did have very good control after the first couple of innings. Um, his control worked its way in, uh, into place, and Sparky Anderson agreed. He, he had great control after that, and he didn't use his uh, – his fastball very much. So then the Reds go on and uh, Tom Seaver goes on and, and it really starts rolling at that point. And there's a funny moment in the fourth inning. John Denny was pitching uh, 
future red John Denny for the St. Louis Cardinals. And with two runners on in the fourth, Denny struck out Seaver. And then after the strikeout, Denny takes off and sprints into the clubhouse in the middle of the inning. There's not three outs. He sprints in. And the players and coaches are standing around staring at each other. There's a big, long delay. Evidently, Denny did return uh, at some point and revealed that on the last pitch to Seaver, his jock strap had snapped. And so he had <laughs> it's a little story you didn't know, huh, Bill? No, I did not know that. So anyway, we begin with the seventh inning. Crowd of 38,216 rose to their feet every time. And Seaver only threw six pitches in the seventh. And then, you know, it, it was it was all over. But the... Uh, but the crying for the Cardinals. Now, two quick notes. Actually, three quick notes here that before we move on, because I just thought these were, were fascinating. First of all, after the game, he appeared on uh, WKRC Channel 12 for a live interview. And just as the station went live, the transmitter went on the blink and the station went off the air unexpectedly. So the interview happened, but nobody ever saw it. And uh, the anchor who conducted the interview, Nick Clooney, father of actor-director George Clooney and uh, Rosemary Clooney's brother. Also, the next night, Frank Sinatra was performing at Riverfront Coliseum. And during the concert, Frank Sinatra spots Seaver sitting in the audience and congratulated him. And uh, the whole crowd at the Sinatra concert stood, gave him a final uh, standing ovation. Can you imagine being at a, a Sinatra concert and Sinatra calls you out from the stage and then you get a standing ovation at a Sinatra concert? Tom Seaver had been strong. Pretty strong. Now, Pete Rose did have two hits in the game. That gave him a two-game hitting streak, Bill. That's a not a record, though, right? Not yet. All right, we'll talk about that in just one moment. Let's move forward to June 18th, Bill. What can you tell us about that day? Well, before we do that, Dave, the, the, you mentioned about how, how Seaver got it, you know, got it on a roll that night as, as the game went on. And that's one thing I, I can tell you, and you can look this up. If you didn't get Seaver early, you weren't going to get him. His ERA is dramatically different past the first inning than it was in the first inning. You're absolutely right, and uh, that, that was a perfect example of it on June 16th. Let's look at June 18th now, Bill. What happened that day? Well, th this is a funny story, and, and this is out of Red Lake Journal, and, and I'm going to kind of read this. Pedro, Born, Pedro Bourbon is ordered by a Hamilton County court to reimburse the Globe Furniture Rental Company for damages to furniture the firm claimed was gnawed by animals beyond repair. The items included a sofa, a dinette set, chairs, and a small table. Bourbon had reportedly put out several days' worth of dog food for his dogs while the Reds were on the road. He evidently did not anticipate that the dogs would eat the food immediately and then, rather than, ra rather than rashing it out to themselves, and then chew on the furniture for the next week. That was Pedro Bourbon in a nutshell. <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty much. July 25th, Pete Rose broke the modern National League hit streak by extending his streak to 38 games. And then on July 31st, Rose tied the all-time National League hit streak at 44 that had been set by Willie Keeler, wee Willie Keeler, in 1897. Rose got a hit off Phil Necro to tie that. Do you remember the the countdown and, and the, the streak in terms of being in the news at that time, Bill? I remember it in the news, but I, I may have to remember I was in the Navy and I was not in Cincinnati at the time. So it didn't have as huge an effect on me as if I would have been at home. So August 1st, the streak ends off Larry McWilliams and Gene Garber. Garber struck out Pete Rose in the ninth. Uh, and, and Pete Rose did not deal with the, with the streak ending very well, did he? No, he didn't. He, he kind of whined and complained and, and said that Garber pitched to him like it was the seventh game of the World Series and blah, 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 blah. And, and Pete didn't come off looking very well. 
Well, that's the competitive Pete. You know, it was it was a really you know we talked about how Pete Rose was was aging a little bit, and and, and Reds fans could have been forgiven if they thought uh, that the highlight uh, highlights for Pete Rose were were behind him. But by the All Star break that year, the streak was at twenty five games. By July fifteenth, he broke the Reds' modern team record within his twenty eighth straight game, and he just he just played so great during that streak. Tell us a little bit about what the uh, what his stats looked like. Well, during the streak, he hit 385 with 70 hits and 182 at-bats. And it's funny because the day after the streak gets broken, he get four hits with a double and a home run. And and the, the, the thing was, it kind of catapulted the Reds into playing even better ball. But the day the streak ended, the Reds were only half a game behind the Giants. One more funny uh, anecdote about that uh, streak ending. You know, Gene Garber obviously was the Atlanta pitcher that ended it. And my co-author on the Big 50, the men and moments that made the Cincinnati Reds, is Chris Garber, so shares a name. And Chris tells the story that uh, he was an obsessive Pete Rose fan at the time, small small child, but uh, he would, was hiding under his covers, listening to uh, Marty and Joe announce, uh, waiting to hear uh, hopefully another Reds hit. But then uh, it basically broke his heart when uh, Pete didn't get a hit against Gene Garber. And the worst part for him, he says, was that the guy that struck Pete out there shared the same last name because uh, as far as he was concerned, that was the, this tale's uh, most diabolical villain. So he goes running into his parents' room at 1030 at night and barely coherent through his, uh, through his crying. He finally got his message across. There was only one thing to be done. He must be allowed to change his last name to anything but Garber. <laughs> so there's no relation? No, not as far as we know, but, uh, <laughs> Thankfully for for Chris, oh, I love that story. It's one of my favorites. So, anyway, you're right. The, this kind of propelled the Reds. They were only a half game behind the Giants the day the streak ended, and this is the first day of of August. And then in August sixth, even better, the Reds moving to first place for the first time. Uh, tell me about that, Bill. Well, they moved into first time for the they moved into first place for the first time since April the 25th, and it looked like they were ready for a, a late patented Reds late season run. But it was not to be. The the bench was too thin. They'd had injuries. The pitching was wobbly, and their bad def- their defense was just poor. They went from 95 errors in '77 to 134 in the '78, and it finally caught up with them. They lost 16 of their next 22 and sank out of the playoff race. They went 10 and 18 in August, and the Dodgers roared past them and the Giants, and it was it was pretty much over. Yeah, and really no. No highlights the rest of the way. August 30th, the Reds extended rain checks for the first time at Riverfront. That's the as much as we have for a highlight. Previously, the only game postponed at Riverfront had been the second game of a doubleheader versus San Diego back in 71. September 10th, Ron Oster made his Major League debut. Now, Oster, of course, would have a, a good Reds career. He's in the Reds Hall of Fame now and, and obviously a member of the 1990 Wire to Wire Champs as well. And, and was rumored to be a Reds manager contender a number of times. Absolutely. So the Reds uh, do go 19-8 and in September but they finished the season with 92 wins, which, you know, hey, that doesn't sound too bad to me, but 92 and 69 and two and a half games behind who else? The hated Los Angeles Dodgers. So how do we wrap up this season? 92 wins after an 88-win season. They're better, uh, but maybe not as much better. I think there's some some reasonably, maybe they weren't as much better as as that number looks, right? Well, the the Pythagorean Pythagorean, uh, win-loss Things said they really should have only won 83 games, but they went 33 and 19 in one run games, which was their best record of the 70s. And and most people really couldn't figure out how this team stayed in contention all season. Anderson called the the, the entire season, especially the pitching, just a patchwork season. Yeah, the pitching was just 
really not good, as you said, Bill. They gave up 688 runs. That was ninth best in the in the league. Just awful. Seaver, of course, you know, uh, he was early. He was under 500 in early September and finished just 16 to 14. He actually had a pretty good year, but the Reds scored two or, two or fewer runs for him in 15 of his 36 starts. The rest of the pitching wasn't much better, though, right? Yeah, well, Norman it was pretty good in the first half of the season with a 308 ERA, but in the second half it ballooned up to 5.10. Bill Bonham had elbow issues and missed a dozen starts. And the, the, the prospects that they counted on, Tommy Hume, Paul Moscow, and Mike Lacoste combined to go 18-23 and 23 with a bigger than four ERA. The best guy in the bullpen was, was Doug Bear, who had a good season. He had 28 saves and an ERA under two. But the next best guy in the bullpen was Mary, Manny Sarmiento, and his ERA was 4.39. The, the big what-if story on this season was what if they had actually gotten Vita Blue. And Blue went 18-10 and 10 for the Giants that year with an ERA plus of 123 and a wins above replacement of 5.8. You, you have to believe that he would have made a difference. Yeah, if he's starting instead of uh, Mike Lacoste or, uh, you know, uh, Tom Hume started 23 games that season. It, you have to believe the Reds would have been. Uh, I think that's the difference. I think it's probably the difference in this season. One thing that was interesting to me as well is that we talked about Mario Soto, who'd be go- going to become a Reds legend, debuted the previous year. Uh, Soto only pitched in five games and only started one this year. I, I can't believe that with his talent and ability that he didn't get an- another chance. But it comes down to me. I'm going to keep harping on it because it really it's still it's still upsetting. If Vita Blue were a Red that year, they, you know they only lost to by two and a half games to the team that it would end up going to the, back to the World Series again, the Dodgers, uh, and then and lost to the Yankees again. But it just it's not unreasonable to believe that that entirely changes what happens, and also that maybe changes what happens in the next few years in terms of what we can expect from the Reds. Am I, am I making too much of that? Well, I don't know how long the, the success would have continued, but I think it's easy to say that they'd have been a different team in, in 78 and 79, maybe even into 80, depending on, depending on how long Blue's contract would have been for the offense was still pretty good in 78, but it was starting to show some cracks in the armor a little bit. They did score 710 runs, which was second in the league, but it was only 65 runs above the league average. Two years before, when they'd made the World Series and swept the Yankees in the World Series in 1976, they'd had 212 runs more than the league average. So you're starting to see, uh, as I say, some cracks in the armor, right? Yeah, seven of the eight starters that year had worse years than the previous year. The only guy that, that bettered his numbers was David Concepcion. And the defense was starting to show signs of age, too. None of the, the five or the four annual Gold Glove winners, Bench, Morgan, Concepcion, and Geronimo, won a Gold Glove that year. And, and the bench was, was – there was no production off the bench. Uh, the best player was probably Mike Lum, and he wasn't very good. He had six home runs and hit 267. There wasn't much that helped him off the bench. George Foster, I've said, uh, good year. Led the league in homers and RBIs with 40 home runs and 120 RBIs. The MVP voting, George Foster 6th, Pete Rose 11th. So, again, you know, we talked about every year during this stretch, they had a two, three, four people in the top 10. Did have a two in the top 11, I guess, which is which is something, but not what we've come to expect from the big red machine. It's beginning to decline here some. And attendance, still pretty good, though, right? Yeah, they still drew two and a half million, and they were the first team in Major League history to draw over two and a half million three straight years. And this was despite having the second highest ticket prices in baseball, which is kind of shocking when you think about it. But they wouldn't reach two and a half million again until the year 2000. And as the Reds look forward to 1979, 
There's some question about where we are. Are they still the machine? We'll discuss that next week. Thank you for listening to Building the Machine, a brand new podcast series from Red Leg Nation Radio. To get each episode of the show delivered to you automatically, subscribe to Red Leg Nation Radio. You can find us at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, essentially wherever you find podcasts, we're there. Many of the facts, figures, and anecdotes from today's episode came from BaseballReference.com and the books Red Leg Journal by Greg Rhodes and John Snyder, Big Red Dynasty by Greg Rhodes and John Arardi, and The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the Cincinnati Reds by Chris Garber. Until next time, for Bill Lack, this is Chad Dotson saying so long, everyone. Thank you.